at God's gift of a Savior, but we also look forward to a day that's drawing ever nearer when our Savior will come a second time to bring us to our eternal home. So the season of Advent, then, ought to function like sort of a tune-up for our eschatological hopes. That's sort of the fullest, final hope that we have. Advent gives us an opportunity to sort of strengthen and retune and clarify those hopes in, in at least two ways. Number one, it reminds us, as we look ahead, that God still has promises to keep. God kept promises in sending Christ, but there's more that he hasn't yet fulfilled entirely because Christ has yet to finally establish his forever kingdom. So that is a promise that he's yet to keep. He will bring us ultimately to a new creation where we'll live and reign with Christ forever. That is a hope that yet awaits the Christian. And it reassures us as we look back that God kept his promises the first time around when Jesus came into the world as God incarnate. And so we believe that he will keep his promises again at the proper time. And so Advent has us looking in both directions, at God's past faithfulness and at God's future promises that will surely be fulfilled in the proper time through the work of Jesus Christ. And it's that reminder and that reassurance that our hearts need in order to be a people prepared. That's the language of Luke chapter 1. A people prepared. A people made ready for the coming of the Lord. Both to rightly celebrate his first coming and to longingly anticipate his second coming. And to help us in that preparation, we're journeying through the first chapter of Luke's gospel. So if you have a copy of the Bible, I'd invite you to turn to the gospel of Luke. We don't get to chapter 2 until Christmas Day, so we have a month of waiting, a month of preparation, a month of reflections through Luke chapter 1 that lead us up to the threshold of the coming of Jesus. Now, last week, as we started this uh, journey through Luke chapter 1, we met some members of the faithful remnant of God's people in Jerusalem. Of course, the people of Israel are under Roman rule and oppression at this point and wondering, when will the kingdom be restored? When will God send his deliverer? And many have wandered into unfaithfulness and unbelief and have... uh, sort of syncretized themselves with other faiths and pagan rituals, but there is a remnant. There is a faithful remnant of those who are clinging to God's promises and following God's word. And we met a couple of those last week, an aging priest by the name of Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. Now, Zechariah met an angel named Gabriel when he was in the temple uh, to burn incense. And that angel let him know that his aging and barren wife, Elizabeth, would soon conceive and bear a son. And they were to name him John. And John would be the prophesied forerunner of the Messiah. Not the Messiah himself, not the promised deliverer, but the one who indeed was prophesied, for example, in the book of Malachi, to come and prepare the way for the Messiah to come. He would be the one that would announce to the world, essentially, look, The Messiah is here. And so Zechariah had that 
uh, meeting in the temple that struck him mute and perhaps deaf until the birth of John. And today, we meet another key player in this unfolding drama. Rather than an aging, barren woman, the camera zooms in, as it were, upon a young, unmarried Jewish girl who receives an unexpected visit from a strange heavenly being. So let's walk through the story together and see how the Lord might intend to prepare our hearts for his coming. So beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. We're going to pause there and talk about what we see. There's actually a lot of exposition packed into those two little verses. It tells us that this happens in the sixth month. That is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. We're told back in verse 24 that Elizabeth conceived and for five months kept herself hidden. And then we're told in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent. And so we're talking about not the sixth month of the year, but the sixth month of, of Elizabeth's pregnancy with John. All right? So that's the context there. And we're told immediately it is the same angel. We don't have to wait for a point in the story for the angel to announce his name. We're told the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee. And he introduced himself to Zechariah in the temple. I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And so now we're told it's that very same angel who delivered the news about John to Zechariah who now is sent to a little kind of podunk town, not in Judea, but in Samaria, in the northern part of the land of Palestine, the region of Galilee, a town called Nazareth. In the Gospel of John, Nathaniel sort of sarcastically remarks at some point, can anything good come from Nazareth? And so you get a sense of how people think about Nazareth. It's not a, it's not a thriving metropolis. It's not a, a prestigious town. It's a small kind of nowhere town. But this is the town where a man named Joseph lives. And so the angel goes not to the temple in Jerusalem like last week, but he goes to Nowheresville. He goes to Nazareth. To a virgin whose name is Mary. Now, it's worth noting that just the timing here, so we understand the context of things, this appearance of Gabriel to the Virgin Mary takes place well before her betrothed, Joseph, will receive a similar announcement. We don't read about that announcement in Luke, but in Matthew's gospel, we hear about it, where an angel comes to Joseph and reassures him about God's purposes for the baby to be born. Uh, and we're told there that by, when the angel came to him, his fiance, essentially, Mary, had already been found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. That's the language used in uh, Matthew 1.18. And so the baby is already growing inside Mary's womb when an angel appears to Joseph. So that just tells us that Mary is the first to hear. All right, Mary is the first one uh, to receive this news, and so the angel Gabriel comes uh, to her. Now, it says that 
she's betrothed to a man named Joseph. And you may, may have heard some of this before, but a betrothal is similar to our engagement, except that it's legally binding. It is a period prior to marriage, but it is nevertheless a legally binding agreement that a woman will be given to a man and they are engaged, betrothed to be married. And a betrothal could only be ended by offering a, issuing a legal divorce, essentially. And so it's, it's similar to our engagement in, in that it's pre-marriage, but it's different in that it is a legally binding uh, agreement. And it could last for a year or two. They were, they were, it could be lengthy periods of time. And so Mary is betrothed, that is, she is uh, legally bound to marry this man Joseph from Nazareth. And we're told that he is from the house of David. And that is significant, that Joseph is a descendant of David, and we'll talk about some of the significance of that in just a little bit. I also want you to note the detail that he was sent, verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, okay? A young, unmarried woman. They have not yet had any sexual relationship, so she is a virgin. And that detail will become really important when the angel makes his particular announcement. But immediately we're thinking, if we're attuned to the Old Testament and the prophecies that have been made, we might be thinking of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where there was a prophecy made that a virgin would conceive and give birth, and she shall bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So that promise, though Luke does not specifically cite it or quote it, that promise would be at the forefront of the minds of those reading this letter, and so we ought to remember that. But we'll get back to that in just a minute. So Gabriel, the angel, has been sent from God to visit with this virgin in Nazareth, who is betrothed to a man named Joseph. Here's what the angel says. Look at verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Not surprising that Gabriel once again has to say, don't be afraid, because that's the natural response when you meet an angel, I assume. I've never met one myself, but when you read about people meeting angels in the Bible, they're usually pretty freaked out. And so, Gabriel comes clearly and explicitly with good news, but even so, Mary is concerned. Mary is greatly troubled and trying to discern what kind of greeting this might be. Who exactly is this guy? Why is he taking time to come to me? What am I supposed to do with this, right? So she's troubled, and so he reassures her. Don't be afraid. But I want you to pay attention to the language that he uses here. There's a phrase that he repeats twice, a term really that he repeats twice, and that's the term favor. The very first thing he says to her in verse 28 is, greetings, O favored one, favored one. And then down again, after she's responded with some trepidation and he's reassuring her, he says, don't be afraid. Why? Because you have found favor with God. 
right? Do not be afraid. You have found favor with God. Now, that doesn't mean that she's earned God's attention somehow. That doesn't mean that she's been working really hard and now God is kind of impressed. What it means that she's found favor is that God has set his grace upon her. It is that simple. To find favor means God has set his grace upon you. She did not find God's favor by searching or working for it. She found it by God's sheer good pleasure in that he lovingly chose her for the important role that she was to play. Mark it down. When someone finds favor with God, what's really happened is that God's favor has found them. That's the truth behind this greeting. Greetings, O favored one. That is, greetings to you whom God has chosen in grace. Greetings to you who are a recipient, not by your own merit or work, a recipient of God's free, unconditional love and blessing. Don't be afraid. Why? What's the reason that she shouldn't be afraid? Because what is happening to you, what I am about to tell you, is by the Lord's favor. That is, this is his grace. Don't be afraid because what I'm telling you about right now is God's grace to you. I'm not bringing judgment. I'm not bringing fearful tidings. I'm bringing God's grace. It is his good heart toward you that is expressed in this strange greeting and in this seemingly impossible announcement. So we come to the announcement. Let's look at what he tells Mary in verses 31 through 33, and then we'll unpack this together. This is clearly the the heart, the centerpiece of this passage is this announcement. Look at verse 31. After he tells her, you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is a loaded couple of sentences concerning who is to be born and the manner in which he is to be born. The first thing he says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. She will understandably have questions about that. We'll get to that in just a minute. And you will call his name Jesus, Yeshua, which means the Lord saves. In Matthew 1, 21, when the angel appears to Joseph, he says of him, his name will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's the meaning of his name. It's the Lord saves. You will bear a son and his name is salvation. Clearly, what he carries with him is good tidings of great joy, the salvation of God's people. You will call his name the Lord saves. Next thing he says about him, he will be great. Now, you might remember that he said the same thing about John when he appeared to Zechariah. He said, you will bear a son, you shall give him the name John. He will be great. 
But when it came to John, the greatness had less to do with who he was and more to do with the role he had been given to play, the function that he would carry out as this messenger, this prophet who would announce the coming of the Messiah. But that's not the case with this Jesus. Jesus will be great because of who he is. Jesus is great because of where he comes from. Jesus is great because, as we'll see next, he will be called Son of the Most High. That's the next thing that we see. He will be called Son of the Most High. The Most High is clearly a term for God, for Yahweh, the God of Israel and the creator of the whole earth. It is what Melchizedek, the king of Salem, called him when he met Abraham back in Genesis chapter Whatever chapter that was, I forgot it. You probably could find it. But Melchizedek says that he is a priest of the Most High God. And so God Most High becomes this designation referring to his all-encompassing power, his authority over the world. And so when he says to Mary that this son that you will bear, that you're going to name Jesus, who will be great, will be called the Son of the Most High, what he's saying is, This is God himself. This is the son of the most high God. Now, that phrase, that most high, is used later in Luke chapter 1 in verse 76 to refer to John. But what it says there is that John would would be the prophet of the most high. So John is the prophet of the most high. But Jesus is the son of the most high. And the Son bears the nature and the essence of the Father. He will be called Son of the Most High. And then he says to her, The Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. Now a king's royal right depended upon uh, his father's lineage. And so Jesus is recognized as a descendant of David primarily because his earthly father, Joseph, is a descendant of David. So So it's important that we were told earlier that the man, Joseph, to whom Mary is betrothed is from the house of David because that tells us that in as the legal father of Jesus, that heritage, that lineage traces him back to King David, the great mighty king of Israel. And so Joseph is a descendant of David through his son Solomon. You can read that genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. And there's another genealogy that appears in Luke chapter 3 that's a little bit different. And we don't have time to get into the details of this. And there are various theories sort of put forward about how, what might explain those differences. One possible theory that bears some credibility in my mind, is that the the genealogy in Luke 3 is actually tracing Mary's lineage, even though it doesn't name her. It says his father Joseph, and then it begins to to go up generations, but the generations are different. And so one possible explanation for that is that we're actually getting Mary's lineage, but they wouldn't name Mary because it was, again, common in these these genealogies to focus on the, the father. And so it's possible that Luke 3's genealogy is about Mary. And if that's the case, then we have clear indication that Mary herself is a descendant of David. And that may or may not be the case, but at any rate, legally speaking, 
when, some, when somebody would look at a genealogy to determine a person's parentage and their lineage and whether they had the sort of royal right, the royal blood, if you, were, if you will, to be king, Joseph being of the house of David is the fundamentally important detail here. But one way or another that Jesus is born of David's line is irrefutable. Why the big deal about David? Why does it matter that Joseph is of the house of David? Why does it matter that Jesus is seen as a descendant of David? Well, namely because in 2 Samuel chapter 3, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David that a descendant of his would reign on the throne forever. That he would establish the dynasty of King David's house for eternity. Clearly that wasn't David, clearly that wasn't Solomon, and on and on we go. Only one could reign on a throne forever. It has to be one who lives forever, one who is himself eternal. So here is this promised deliverer, this Messiah who's coming into the world, and he comes in the house of David. He comes in the lineage of King David. This is clearly the one to whom God will give the throne forever. This is clearly the one of whom God promised to David. One of your sons, one of your descendants will reign on the throne forever. And now, here he is. You will conceive and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And then he just spells this out in a couple of more ways to talk about the, the perpetuity of this, the unending nature of this. The Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, which is just another way of speaking of the people of Israel, forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. 2 Samuel seven thirteen, God told David, I will establish the throne of his kingdom, that is that descendant of his kingdom forever. And down in verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me forever. God's not just talking about an earthly dynasty. He's not even just talking about the, the national boundaries of Israel. He's talking about his descendant reigning on the throne over his people for eternity. That's a pretty big deal. That's a pretty crazy thing to meet an angel and have him tell you. You're going to have a son. Let me tell you a little bit about who he is. He's the son of the Most High God. He, in fact, bears the very imprint and nature of that God because he is indeed, in essence, God himself. And he is the one that has been promised for centuries to David, whose descendant would reign on the throne forever. Your king is coming. He's going to be growing in your womb. That is noteworthy. That's news you don't soon forget. Now, we come to Mary's initial response in verse 34, and it makes perfect sense. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Literally, since I know no man. To know a person in the Bible's language is often has to do with, with relational and sexual intimacy. 
I know no man. I am a virgin. How could this be? How am I going to conceive and bear a son when I have known no man? Right? That's, that's what she's asking. She's like, okay, I heard all this stuff about who he's going to be, but let's back up a little bit. Like, just the fact that there's going to be anybody growing inside me is a little bit strange. How, how could this be? Now, a couple of things I want you to notice about this question that Mary asks. First of all, it's not unbelief. It's not the same as Zechariah asking in last week's passage, how can I know this? Right? Uh, he was looking for a sign. How will you prove to me that what you're saying is true? That, that's essentially what Zechariah was asking. And Gabriel clearly interpreted that as unbelief because he said, because you did not believe my words, you will not be able to speak until uh, the child is born. And so Zechariah's response, how can I know this, was clearly unbelief. And it was looking for a sign to confirm that this is actually true. That's not what Mary is doing. She doesn't say, now, assure, to me, assure me that what you're telling me is the truth. What she's essentially saying is, help me understand how this will happen. How will this be? That's what she asks. And the second thing to note about it is, of course she would ask this. Of course you need to know this. This is a pretty key detail. It shows that the people are not so naive about where kids come from, right? There's sometimes these goofy ideas about like people in primitive societies didn't, didn't really understand you know, how these things came about, which is nonsense. She obviously knows that it's unusual for her to conceive and bear a son when she has known no man, right? That she, she gets that's not the way things usually work. So how will this be? She's basically asking, how is this going to happen since what you're saying is impossible? How could this be? Because that doesn't happen. I wonder if you've ever had that thought before. If you've ever asked, that God, asked God that question. How could this be? Because this isn't possible. How will this situation possibly turn out for my good? Lord? Or how will I find a way to escape the weight of this temptation, Lord? Or how will you provide for my needs after I just lost my job, Lord? All kinds of questions that we might ask of the Lord in our own lives, in our own situations, where there are promises in God's word that are made to his people that seem impossible. How will this be? Well, in verses 35 and 36, the angel kind of explains. And I say kind of because it's not very detailed, and it allows plenty of room for mystery. Look at verse 35. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High, there he is again, God himself, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So he says simply, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And that's sort of a uh, prophetic and mysterious phrase. Uh, what we're told again in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, is simply that she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So we probably don't need to know all the details about exactly how this happens, but the point is the Holy Spirit of God places a life inside the womb of Mary, and he begins 
to grow. And because he's conceived, he has begun by the Holy Spirit, then he is said to be uh, fathered by, as it were, the Holy Spirit. So how will this be? Basically, God's going to take care of it. Right? The Holy Spirit is going to do this. That's the essential answer. And then he gives her another detail. And behold, and this is interesting, right? This is merciful, I think, because Mary didn't ask for a sign. She didn't ask for any other confirmations. But he kind of gives her one anyway. In verse 36, he says, Behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So it's a little bit like, in case you're wondering if this is out of the blue, God's already been at work, and I'm going to give you some proof. Your relative, we don't know exactly what the relationship is between Mary and Elizabeth, probably some kind of distant cousin, but your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. She had been called barren, and now she's in the sixth month of her pregnancy. So you could go follow up on that yourself. You could check up on that if you want to, which she will, and that's what we'll talk about next week. But so he tells her, your relative Elizabeth has also conceived in her old age. God is moving, not starting right now, actually six months ago. He'd already begun this process. Let me just talk for a minute about the virgin birth. The virgin conception, really, is what we have here. If you thought God opening the womb of a barren woman, like Elizabeth, was impressive, you ain't seen nothing yet. You see, we can think of numerous biblical examples of, prior to Elizabeth, of women who had been barren, who miraculously then gained the biological ability to conceive a child through the otherwise ordinary means of procreation, right? The miracle in their cases was that their body became able to bear children. The miracle was not the conception itself. The miracle was the biological function of it. But there are no other examples before or since of what God does in forming the life of his Messiah in the womb of a virgin. This is unique. So unique that it's often considered sort of outdated, kind of primitive. Well, we're enlightened people. We don't believe that kind of stuff anymore. But listen, if you believe in a God who raises the dead, if you believe in a Jesus who walks on water, if you believe in a, God who, in a Jesus who himself will die and come back to life again, it shouldn't be that tough to believe that God might miraculously conceive a child in the womb of a woman who has known no man. And that's what has happened. And that is the, the clear testimony of the scriptures. And so this ought to make us just marvel at the power and wonder of God and his creativity. Who does this? How is this the story that you write? How brilliant. And we need to note the doctrinal importance of the virgin birth, not just because we don't want to be uh, you know, we don't want to be guilty of forsaking tradition and things like that, but because it actually bears theological importance for the work that Jesus would come to do. Note in verse 35, after he has sort of kind of explained how this conception will happen, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will, will overshadow you. Then he says, therefore, 
That is, because this child is the work of the Holy Spirit, because this child is conceived by God himself, therefore the child to be born will be called holy. That is, set apart, sanctified, the Son of God. He's holy, and he's the Son of God. Why? Because he was born to a virgin and conceived not by a human father, but by the Holy Spirit. Jesus' holiness, his set-apartness, is by virtue of his divine conception. And the significance of that is that he doesn't inherit Adam's sinful nature that all the rest of us did. So every person who's been born apart from a virgin conception by the Holy Spirit has inherited a sin nature, a fallen human nature from Adam. And that is indeed what makes us guilty before God. We are sinners and therefore we sin because we are in Adam, our first father, our first representative. Jesus doesn't have that same parentage. Jesus doesn't have the broken, fallen lineage of Adam. Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit and therefore he is holy. He is the Son of God. And so for Jesus to be pure and perfect and to walk the earth in obedience and to be an unblemished sacrifice when he goes to the cross, he must be conceived by the Holy Spirit. So if you give up on the virgin birth because it's old-fashioned, you're giving up on a whole lot of the rest of the gospel as well. And so as the Nicene Creed tells us, for us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human, and so we believe. And that is the good news of the virgin conception of Jesus. How will this be? Well, listen well. God doesn't only promise the possible. God doesn't even just promise the difficult. He promises the impossible, and then he makes it happen by the power of his will. The virgin conception and birth of Jesus Christ is not difficult for God. In fact, it's nothing compared to the miracle of justification that he works in the resurrected souls of sinners who trust in Jesus for salvation. If we will allow, if we will accept by faith that God justifies sinners by faith, it's not hard to accept that God would conceive his Messiah by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin. How is that the case? Look at verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. In a sense, that's the answer to Mary's question. How will this be? The angel says, we're talking about God here. There's nothing impossible for God. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. And that actually echoes back to Genesis 18, 14, when an angel had appeared to Abraham and Sarah to tell them that a child would be born to them about a year later. And Sarah laughed. Remember, Sarah's initial response was unbelief, and she laughed. And the angel said to her, is anything too hard for the Lord? And so that very phrase is echoed, I think, in what Gabriel says to Mary here. Nothing will be impossible 
with God. Well, observe Mary's humble, faith-filled response to this strange and troubling announcement. After Gabriel has said all these things, here's what's going to happen to you, here's who this child is going to be, here's how it's going to come about. In verse 38, and Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed her. Listen, the dogma of the Roman Catholic Church has twisted Mary's legacy into unsubstantiated theological innovations. And the typical response of a good Protestant to Rome's distortions of Mary is basically just to ignore her. We don't want to talk about Mary because people think weird stuff about Mary. So we just kind of pretend that this whole virgin birth thing is off to the side and we don't, we don't really want to talk about Mary. But listen, that neglect, if that is our response to just we don't want to talk and think about Mary at all, that response blinds us to what must be one of the purest, most compelling examples in the Bible of what true discipleship really looks like. I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Isn't that what we should say to the Lord's callings and commands? Let it be to me as you have said. I am your servant. I am here for you. You are not here for me. If this is your plan and purpose, if this is your will, I'm here for it. That's the heart of discipleship. That's the heart of someone following Jesus, who worships and believes in Jesus. It's somebody who says, I will take whatever you give. I am here for you. And that is what Mary says here, which is beautiful and remarkable and instructive to us all. But I want to give a particular word to teenagers and young women in the room. So if you were tuning out, come back. Mary is a young woman and, in fact, probably a teen. The betrothal thing that we were talking about earlier could happen as early as 12. And a betrothal could be a year or two. So she could be as young as 13 or 14. Maybe more likely that she's 16, 17, somewhere in that range. But at any rate, Mary is probably a teenage girl. Her youth does not hinder God from entrusting her with an unspeakably important role in his redemptive plan. And her youth does not prevent Mary from demonstrating herself to be a serious worshiper and serious follower of Christ. So to the young people in the room, don't let anyone tell you you're just a kid. Get serious about your faith. Get serious about God's word. Take up the calling of Christian discipleship and mission and don't look back. This faith is for you, not just your parents. There's good things to gain when we think about the work of God in the life of this young woman. So let's not be afraid. Well, I think the, the most stunning, compelling aspect of this whole greeting, this whole announcement, kind of hinges on what Gabriel said to Mary at the very beginning. If you look back again at verse 28... 
He said, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. O favored one. The Lord is with you. This was the angel's greeting to Mary on that day, and it is the word of the gospel that God speaks into the heart of his people every day through Christ. Because of Advent, because of the deliverer who arrived in the world, just as Gabriel announced to Mary would happen, the same assurance resounds in the hearts of all who believe. Number one, you have found favor with God. That is the good news of the gospel. Through the work of Jesus Christ, through his sinless life, through his death in our place, through his resurrection from the dead, wrath has given way to mercy. Curse has given way to blessing. Estrangement has given way to favor. If you are in Christ, the Lord is not angry with you. He is pleased with you. Delighted by you. He favors you. You have found favor with God. And number two, the Lord is with you. The good news of the gospel is the promise of Emmanuel. God with us. And by faith, Christ dwells in your, if by faith, Christ dwells in your hearts and you are united to him forever, no matter what you face, no matter what else changes, this is true. The Lord is with you. Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. Brothers and sisters, born again of God's spirit and united to Christ by faith, if you want to know the real joy of Christmas, bear this in mind. You have found favor with God. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks in wonder and humility that you have set your favor upon us. Teach our hearts to wonder at your grace, to worship, teach us to live in the light of this reality, that we live under your favor, we live with your presence, because of the good news that you announced to Mary so long ago and the work that you accomplished through Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. This is our story. Help us to know what it means to live in that good and make us ready, we pray, to spread that good news, to share that story with those around us across the street and across the world. Make us fit. Equip us. Prepare us to receive your ministry in our hearts and to shine the light of gospel hope where you've placed us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the best expressions of the favor 